Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Paul Bloom. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University, and an author. The human mind is a mystery. If it wasn't for the fact that we experience it, the universe would give us absolutely no indication that consciousness even existed. After an entire career studying psychology, Professor Bloom has some answers to the psychology questions we've all asked ourselves. Expect to learn whether you can actually remember everything that you've ever experienced, whether we know why consciousness evolved at all, why we should remember Sigmund Freud, why babies are way smarter than you think, whether attachment theory is rubbish, if psychology can tell us how to live a good life, and much more. Don't forget that if you are listening, you should have also got a copy of the Modern Wisdom Reading List. It is 100 of the most interesting and impactful books that I've ever read. Fiction and non-fiction, real-life stories, and there's links to go and buy them and descriptions about why I like them. And it's completely free. And you can get your copy right now by going to chriswillx.com books. That's chriswillx.com books. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Paul Bloom What do we actually know about human consciousness? Do we know why it evolved or what its function is? No, we don't know. Uh, we don't know why we're conscious as opposed to zombies that are fully functional. We don't know um, how the brain gives rise to consciousness. We know it is the brain. I mean, the best science tells us that that a consciousness emerges from our very physical brain. But one of the great puzzles in psychology is how does a three-pound piece of meat bloody meat gives rise to, you know, love and hate and the feeling of, uh, of a first kiss and slamming your hand in a car door and being on a podcast. Um, there's a lot we do know about consciousness. We know, um, we know how, how it, uh, we know how it works in attention and perception. We, we, we have theories of differences in conscious experience, but the big questions at this point elude us. I've heard that, one potential explanation for the reason that consciousness comes about is that it's kind of a byproduct of us being able to have quite a complex theory of mind of other people, that when you have a large social group and I need to be able to predict 
what Paul thinks yeah. about me thinking about that person and what they think about him thinking about me, uh, that you end up having a lot of layers of abstraction and that basically consciousness is potentially kind of like a side effect, like how a light bulb gives off light, but it also gives off heat, that yeah. all of the fancy mental imagery that we get is just kind of uh, dressing on the side of that. I think it's it's possible. One issue is there's two senses of consciousness, at least, but two many people talk about. One is sort of what sometimes called access consciousness, which is the idea of information being available to us. You can mull it over, you can analyze that. And I think that's really necessary for, for high-level reasoning, for language use, for making sense of, of, um, of what other people are doing. So I'm not right now directly conscious of my blood pressure and heart rate. It's just unconsciousness, fine. But I'm conscious that I'm talking to you and I know you, we met before. And the fact that I'm conscious of it means I could talk about it, I could reason about it. And we have good theories of that. The more mysterious thing is what's called phenomenological consciousness, the feel. And some philosophers think you could have one without the other. Like we could have, we got to be fully reasoning. And maybe AIs are like this, or will be like this, where they have, where we're able to reason and make arguments and have, and, 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 understand other people other in people but um but the feel of it the feel of being a person right now to feel as you're sitting there the, of of the seat against your behind the feeling of headphones in your ears where does that come from and that's kind of a, a mystery and it may be epiphenomenal something else but then you have to explain why is it epiphenomenal that what do you mean what's the word epiphenomenal mean it means um, that you you have um, a certain something of a certain function, and then something else comes as an accident from it. And what would be another epiphenomenon that humans have? The, the say one example is there's all sorts of things about blood which are really essential for what blood does. But the fact that it's the color red when brought into the light is is epiphenomenal. It didn't have to be red. It could be green. Could be brown. Doesn't matter. It's just it's just there, there's there's no point to it. Um, I I learned the other day that there is a, a particular genetic mutation in some Asian people, which causes them to have both. I think it's low blood pressure and extra dry earwax. Huh. And you think, <laughs> yes, so give me the, give me the adaptive reason. So that's another that's another example. Some people when they stare into the sun will sneeze. Now what? you know why? Oh yeah. You, uh, well, that's a good question. I don't know. There's a story behind it, but the story isn't our ancestors who did this reproduce more than those who didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm I'm as much of a fan of evolutionary explanations as anybody, and 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 my book's full of them, and you know, reasonable stories for perception and sexuality and and reasoning. But but when it comes to the feel of consciousness, some people say it's as much it's as much of an accident as 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 uh, the, the sneezing. I don't know. If one, one, sorry. Go ahead. One thing which is kind of cool, which is something I've been getting interested in recently, is how our consciousness differs. And um, so there's people, as you know, of synesthesia, whose senses blip over from one to another. So there's a there's a story of this Russian guy who um, who, when he looks at words, tastes them. And this is so much he can't read the newspaper while he's eating breakfast because it spoils his meal. You know. Um, then there's other people on the other extreme. Who have I think it's called aphantasia, no visual imagery. There's weird. There's a guy on Twitter who said I don't know if I have like 30, 40, something like that. Way into his adulthood, says I always thought when people said they have images in their heads, they were just it was just a metaphor. But you know he had none. You close your eyes, nothing 
can't see anything, can't, can't draw up anything. Um, some people have voices in their heads. I'm not talking about schizophrenics. I'm talking about sort of a narrator, like in these, you know, these comedies or these, these, these movies where there's a narrator and a little narrator. Some people don't. Maybe we experience pain differently. Maybe we see colors differently. That's kind of cool. The fact that we're able to hear a voice in our heads when we think it, when you think about a interaction that you had with someone, an embarrassing one or an enjoyable one or a loving one or whatever, and that you can hear a sound, but you can't hear the sound. There's no sound being played no. anywhere. No. That, and I think that this may be because my... I've heard that um, certain people are more image-oriented. Yeah. Uh, other people seem to be more, whatever, auditory-oriented. I wonder whether there's some people that are kind of more somatic, like they feel, I wonder, I don't know. Uh, but for me, I am definitely lean a, more heavily on hearing the words, hearing them spoken. Yeah. Fuck me, they're loud. They're really loud sometimes. And I think, how can I hear anything? And they compete. You could be listening to something, actual sounds of actual words can be coming into your ears and being played to your brain. And yet you can be hearing your inner voice talk louder than real words. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there's research with mental imagery that finds that when some people, people in, in, in laboratory terms, create an image. So I ask you to sort of close your eyes and think of the inside of your, your house or your apartment. You know, count the windows, walk around and count how many windows there are. You could do that, navigate around and everything. Now, while people do this, their visual cortex is activated. The same system that actually sees is activated, suggesting that in some sense you're seeing it. Now, I don't know if these studies have been done with, with sound, but it wouldn't surprise me if the auditory cortex was activated. You know, you... I can sometimes call to mind not just voices, but, but um, music, chords, for instance, that, you know, and I hear them as if I was hearing them. You talk in your new book about the system of human memory, and I think that you've just nudged there on one of the ways in which it could be a little bit more fallible. Just how useless of a system is the uh, human memory construct? The human memory construct is extraordinarily useful. Just just try getting amnesia and seeing how well it works for you. You know, these disorders where you, you lose your memories of the past or, or these cases like these famous cases where people can't form. New Memories is in the excellent movie Memento, Christopher Nolan's film, this guy can't form new memories. Um, but it's not what we think it is. And sometimes when people tell me, you know, oh, psychology is just common sense. Tell me something I didn't know. Well, I, I got a list. And, and memory is one thing on the list where a lot of people think what happens in memory, it's like you, um, you, you, you hold up your, uh, your iPhone and it's just, it's just, you know, recording the world. And then it also stays in this hard drive and then later on through hypno hypnosis or a kind therapist, it could all come out. It's just there. And this is total nonsense. Most of what we experience is lost forever. You don't intend to, it just doesn't get in. And then when we recover our memory, when you say, what happened to you? We talked a while ago. How did that conversation go? Where were you? Where was I? What was said? In some part, you know, we go back and we, there's a storage system there. But in some part, it's a reconstruction, you know. If, uh, if you said to me, um, said to me, boy, that was quite a storm the day we talked. And then a week later, you asked me to remember, tell you about the day we talked. You say, I might say, yeah, it was a storm, wasn't there? Because what you tell me fits, it, creates the story and leading questions can create false memories. You know, there's a study after 
a couple of my colleagues um, came and they asked people, where were you when a, when the planes hit? And um, these guys, a bit older colleagues there. And, uh, and people gave their stories. And then they went back and asked them like five years later, 10 years later. And the stories are entirely different. We just, we just, our memories are deeply unreliable. I'd heard a bro science rumor that nothing is forgotten. Everything is kept. And it is a case of us unlocking yeah. that. Are you totally def- wrong. You're totally definitively wrong. saying that that's horseshit. Horseshit. It's, How do you know it's, it's horseshit? It's horseshit in a couple of ways. One way is that some things that, ex- that you experience, that you're sort of right in front of your eyes, you don't attend to them. Most of the world you don't attend to. You tend to like a percentage of the world. If you don't attend to it, it's not that gone six months later. It's gone five seconds later. What do you mean when you, you say attend to it? So there's a wonderful experiment done is classic experiment people probably have heard of it before we want you to watch a film and um and you get them there's going to be people wearing different color t-shirts and tossing basketballs back and forth and you ask them at the end of the film how many basketballs are tossed and how many times there's a toss and you'll say oh was it 18 was it 17 that's not what the study's about the trick is that in the film somebody with a gorilla suit walks into the middle pounds his chest and walks out and people don't notice even though front of their faces and and because their attention is drawn one way, the rest of the world is invisible to them. In fact, they came to a book called Invisible Gorilla, summarized by, by uh, Dan Simons and Chris Chabry. And you're not going to remember the gorilla because you didn't attend to it. If you don't focus on something, it's gone. So that's one way it's horseshit. The second way is there's just no evidence for this sort of perfect recording. People, the reason why that this, I guess, bro science thing has come up is you kind of feel that way. You feel, like, oh my God, a photograph memory. I remember exactly what it is. I can recreate it exactly. And people have memories that are, are confident and powerful and genuine and false. So, and, and I think we, we mistake the confidence for the reality. And then this, by the way, this, by the way, so much of my book is sort of theoretical stuff, which I think is really cool, but, but not a much practical value. This has practical value because of eyewitness testimony. Somebody, somebody sits on a, on, a, on a witness stand and says, that was the man who attacked me. And they point to somebody. And juries here just says, well, wow, that's, that's sincere. I can't, that can't be wrong. The person's so confident. People are confident. Then you do a DNA test or you check back and a person didn't do it. And so now we have a better understanding of the weakness of eyewitness testimony. We're particularly bad when it comes to other races, recognizing and remembering their faces. And, and you know, so there's a practical value in knowing this. I remember learning before I even started this show about a study that was done on babies when they were young, being shown different images of sheep and what the babies would do because they hadn't learned to... <clears throat> condense together all sheep faces into just a sheep that they were paying more attention because they could see that's one sheep that's another sheep but a different sheep that's a third sheep different to the first two whereas and i think it was maybe around age either six months to a year or so that they lose that ability presumably the same way that i always heard that we could wiggle our ears but because the muscles don't get used they atrophy away i I heard cool. I, I might be just spouting total bro science at you today. Um, 
I heard that that is a similar system that's online as to the reason as to why we struggle more so with different races to be able to pick their faces apart. Do you think that that sounds accurate? It might be. Um, you, you can use, in some ways, babies are the perfect, you know, amateurs. They, they, they don't have experience in anything. While we are her amateur in some way versus other ways. Um, a sort of, so, so the story for adults, I'll tell you the story for adults. You can tell me if it connects to the baby story. The story for adults is it, it's the race effect has nothing to do with your own race. It's just who you have the most experience with. So if I, if I see 10,000 white faces and I regularly have to distinguish them more or less, maybe for like a hundred of them, I get very attuned to small differences. Just like, just like if, if you're really into, um, I don't know, um, classic rock. You'll distinguish this Pink Floyd song from that Pink Floyd song, this Zeppelin song, that Zeppelin song. But if you don't have much experience or interest in something, it all blurs together. Oh, that's more classical, you know? Or that's another Asian face. That's another black face. I can't pull them apart. And so it's a matter of sort of discrimination with expertise. And their faces are just like songs. They're just like foods. They're just like wines. Um, when you zoom in on something, you get better at it. But then when you're in a sort of separate domain you're not used to, you get worse at it. Does that sound like the baby thing? Yeah, yeah. I, think it, I think it is. And what it highlights is that the race of the person that is the viewer has basically no yeah. uh, impact on their ability to see the people. It's, yeah, it's very much kind of like training That's data. Right. It's training data, right, for That's an AI exactly. system. That's exactly right. and, in fact, and in fact, for babies themselves, one of the sort of creepy findings, I don't know, is that is that white babies tend to prefer to look at white people. Black babies tend to prefer to look at black people. But it's not, again, it's not their own race. It's just, it's just you get a familiarity preference. You like to look at what you've seen before. And we know that there's an Israeli study that uh, looks at kids' race in sort of a cosmopolitan environment. Uh, a lot of black people, white people around. They show no preference. And then again, it doesn't matter what color the baby is. It's just their training data. When it comes to our biases that are... Uh trained heavily seems slightly less inbuilt uh, humans are incredibly tribal do you think that yeah. we have a predisposition to a small amount of racism in all of us i think tribal is a great word here racism carries some extra baggage so i, I want to be conscious i've not i've not no, i've never noticed that racism carries a little bit of well, extra baggage you've, you've heard it you've heard it before have you heard it as a fraught <laughs> issue <laughs> i i like you're not of this country, are you? So it's not, it's, um, no, um, so yeah. Tribal. From, are humans predisposed to be tribal? I've, I've written about this and people have summarized it as a gawker line, babies are a little racist. It's not quite true. And in fact, it's not quite true in an interesting way. We're very tribal. But here's a cool finding from the babies, from the baby work and toddler work. Babies show strong preferences very early on, age one, age two, age three into who to interact with, who to take a toy from, who to accept food from. And they've done these experiments where babies, I would say a white baby, is given something by a white person or black person, and they have to choose. And the cool finding is up to a certain point, they don't care about color. They recognize color. They notice color. They have a preference sometimes. To look, They just don't care about it. They care deeply about language. Mm. So, and it's not just you, you see a baby raised in the States. They have um, a, a black person speaking English, offering them a toy, and a white person speaking French, uh, offering them a toy. They'll choose it from the black person speaking Fuck English. Fuck the French. 
Fuck the French. Not, That's what they're it's, saying. It's not specific to. We're the not French. racist taking, again. We're not racist against anybody except for the French. You're, you're taking this too too uh, too literally. But yes, yes. They hate the French. There we go. That's what I want people to take from my book. <laughs> you know, I will say something actually pro-French, which is they did a study a while ago where um, where they exposed babies born in France to um, to either French or Russian, and babies preferred to listen to. French. So they concluded in this, in this, this is, this is a story I heard from the researchers that may or may not be true, but they concluded, well, you like to listen to the language you were exposed to early on. The, the, the rhythms resonate through the womb and everything like that. And then some reviewers said, what if French just sounds better, period, for everybody? So they had to go do the study in Russia. And then they found Russian kids preferred Russian to French. So it's not that there's a universal preference. Uh, but the very idea somebody would, would say that is just a bit of pro-French to respond to your anti-French. Right, rightly so. That's fine. We've balanced it out. The French people are still listening. Um, I also was uh, looking at a study from, uh, who was the guy that wrote this psychopath book? British dude that lives in Australia. John Lawson? No. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh, fuck, his name's escaped me. Anyway, him. Um, and uh, what, he, what he was saying was how uh, people have massive prejudice, much, much greater than between skin color for different accents. And yeah. this would be adaptive because typically, ancestrally, you would not have been exposed to people of different skin colors. I mean, what the fuck? Yeah. Where, where have you ended up that you've seen someone with a different skin color in you know 2000 BC? But someone from the next valley who says a, a couple of vowels in a slightly different way, that's somebody that you should be very, very cautious of. And uh, yeah, you know, it, it makes so much sense. And I really, really love that insight, um, which was one I'd never thought of before, which is if somebody of a different race with the same accent as you walks into the room, you feel like you have so much in common with that person. Yeah. If somebody of the same race with a different accent walks into the room, it is obvious. It is straight, just so in your face and obvious. And you go, "Oh God, you're going to be yeah. a little while before we got to find common ground for us to talk yeah. about." And that's the argument. The argument is like the, the the psychopath guy. Is he a psychopath or is he study psychopath? Study psychopath. He may also oh, be okay. a psychopath, but he seemed quite quite nice. So okay. The, the the point is that that from a sort of an adaptive point of view, from a historical point of view, evolutionary, you would expect language to be a wonderful cue to us versus them, and babies seem to think that way. Now later on, you pick up whatever tribal, whatever whatever counts as us versus them in your society. So if you're in Ireland at a certain point, it's one thing. If you're in Israel, it's another thing. If you're in the United States, it's another thing. So at some point, you start to realize that wow. Us versus them in my society may well be race, may well be skin color. And that might really matter a lot. Um, and in fact, for adults, at least, there are three things we focus on um, when we look at a new person. The things that stick in memory, things that really count. Sex, gender, like male, female. Age matters. You'll remember whether you're talking to a baby or an adult or an old person or whatever. And race but race is in some way to odd man out. Race is unlike the other two things. Race might take on significance as you're being raised in a society where race matters. If you go to a society where race matters less, maybe not because they're angels, but because they focus on linguistic differences or something else, then, then you won't be as attuned to it. That's interesting. I um just rounding out that conversation about memory. What, 
does it suggest about our um, what we should do, uh, how our attention system works, what people should do if they feel bad about their memory and remembering things, that stuff that isn't attended to is so easily forgotten? Yeah, yeah, um, nothing. You kind of stuck to it. The, the funnel of attention is very limited. So, I mean, it would be maybe a bit of concrete advice. There's a couple of concrete advice, pieces of concrete advice. One is you can choose what to attend to. But if you want to remember what people wear when you talk to them, focus on what they wear. But you, have, you can't expect it to get into the system without making it through the sort of, the sort of bottleneck of attention. So you need, to, you need to attend. And people who are skilled at that sort of thing, like um, in some way radiologists who are looking for science of cancer or air traffic controllers, monitoring trajectory, a lot of the training is what do you attend to? You know, if you put somebody who, does, who never played football um, and, 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 and they're all of a sudden, they're playing a game of football. They don't know where to look. They don't know this counts and that counts. You know, they're looking at people's hairstyles. They're looking at, you know, watching the, the, the ice cream truck roll by. You know, there's certain part of becoming experts is knowing what to attend to. Now, putting that aside, there are memory techniques. Um, when I taught my intro psych course, I had a, a Joshua Four come in and give a guest lecture. He wanted to, he's a writer. He wrote a book called Moonwalking with Einstein, where he outlines the sort of the, the historical, the classical memory techniques, where you basically got to make vivid associations between things. And, you know, with a couple of hours of training, you could learn to do really powerful tricks of memory. But here's the thing. And he gave me permission to tell the story, which I tell in my book. He, he, he gives this bang up lecture in my class about memory techniques. Students love it. Um, I get an email from him um, like a couple of hours later saying, uh, dude, I left my phone in the class because <laughs> he doesn't have good normal memory. That sort of stuff you can't train. Wow. Yeah, I um, I have a bunch of friends who are medical students, Anki, Ebbinghaus, Forgetting Curves, Spaced Repetition, yeah. all of that. Uh, Peter C. Brown that wrote Make It Stick was like episode 20 on the show, I think. And um, yet we do things like leave our keys yeah. and yeah. meet someone. And as they are telling us their name, forget the name, forget the first half of the name as they speak the second half of the name, because our mind is just somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. And they're right. And that's actually a really good example, which is, which is you want to remember people's names. You got to make a freaking effort, you know, Chris. And then I sort of, I see your, and there's all these techniques which sound ridiculous. I see your face and I imagine a C around or something. I don't know, but, but, which I'm, I'm, I'm horrible at that. But, um, names you could use techniques. Faces are tougher. And that's actually an enormous difference. Are you good with faces? Mm, not bad. As a uh, club promoter for a long time, that was something that was pretty good for me. But what's worse is being good with faces and bad with names. Because what the fuck does it mean to be good with faces? Like, I've met this person before, which is even more awkward for you to say. Well, I suppose it mediates you going, hi, yeah. nice to meet you. And they say, oh, we've already met. But it's only half a step away from, hi, we've, I know we've already met and I forgot your name. I am so, so bad at both faces and names. I have said, good to see you in the hopes that it's ambiguous between meeting them for the first time and, and meeting them and having oh, met them Oh, you're before. hedging your bets. You're, I'm you're hedging my bets. Very if interesting. I, if I say, well, okay, so true story. When I was at, yeah, we had a party for incoming graduate students. Uh, I tried to lure them into, into 
coming into the program. We had a party at our house. And I go up to somebody and I say, you know, hi, it's really a, it's it's really nice to meet you. Welcome to the, and they stare at me and says, I've been in the graduate program for three years here. And oh. since, since, you know, it's, it's, and it's not, I don't know. There's this enormous variation. We have to forgive, forgive each other and mostly me for, for things out of our control. Okay. And being bad at faces is a thing. I know very little about Freud. My, um, completely self-taught psychology experience has almost exclusively missed out yeah. everything that he did. How much of him should anybody be taking seriously now in 2023? So first, I bet you know more about Freud than, than, than you think you do, because Freud has sort of trickled into modern culture. So if you've ever heard somebody say to somebody else, you know, you know, look, I'm not your mother, or he has an anal personality, or, you know, it's something like that. These are Freudian ideas. I don't think you need to know anything specific about Freud's theory, because for the most part, it's wrong. The, the details, the oral stage, the anal stage, the phallic stage, the Oedipal complex, the primal scene, the idea that for every kid, the most pivotal moment in their life is when they see their parents having sex or fantasize about it. It's, a lot is just, just nonsense. You think just a lot of like, this was just projection from him? No, I think that's, there, there's, he was actually, I think, a, a, he was not a nice man. Uh, he he was vicious to his enemies and sometimes to his friends, and he was ruthless in his pursuits. He was pretty, seems psychologically normal in many ways. Um, I do think he was a genius, really wonderful writer, brilliant scholar. What what it was was very much of a construction of his time, which was extraordinarily repressed about sex, and um, and people really did come in with bizarre hysterical symptoms, for instance, that may well have been rooted to sexual repression. Um, there were issues of, he struggled his whole career making sense of stories of, of sexual abuse that women told him. At one point, believing they were real, and then, then, they, and then later on saying that they were, they were fantasies by these women and struggling with that. But wherever his views came from, they have not stood the test of time. With the exception of the most important thing at all, of all, which is Freud championed more than anybody else, the idea that we have a dynamic unconscious, that um, what we think and what we do, who we, who we fall in love with, who we vote for, who we hate when we make mistakes, when we miss an appointment we were set up to do, um, he would view all of this as generated by factors that are not conscious to us, that we're not aware of. And... This idea, he wasn't the first, but he was the one who developed the most. This idea, I think, is right. Like, sometimes I do political psychology or moral psychology. And people say, you know, we're really interested in why people vote, voted for Trump or why other people voted for Biden. Well, you're not going to find out by just asking them. Because it's not that they lie to you, though they'll do that too. It's that they don't know. We don't know. You, you know, we tell narratives. I could say, so you have a very popular podcast. How did you get into it? What made you da, da, da? And you'll have a story. That's what we do. We have stories. Is your story true? Probably not. Probably the answer to a lot of stuff is stuff you're not aware of. And Freud was the first to sort of make such a thing about it. And there he was right. There's like a thousand, a million psychology studies that support the idea we're driven by the unconscious. That's all you need to know about Freud. That 
suggest something that I meant to say earlier on about the eyewitness. So uh, the eyewitness erroneously points the finger at Paul and said, it's him, it's him that forgot my name and stole my lunch. And uh, then the DNA evidence of her lunchbox shows that it wasn't you, it was me. And everybody then points at the eyewitness and says, willful deception. She was trying to pin it on Paul because she had a thing. And he goes, no, 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 no. It is possible for you to fully believe what it is that you're saying, like the way that the memory system works allows you the, the best way to deceive someone you're trying to deceive is to believe it yourself. Yes, I mean that gets in, that gets us into a really other an, another interesting topic, which very much dovetails on on Freud, which is why are some things unconscious in the first place? And the standard story is well, consciousness is limited. You know, if, unless something needs to be conscious, better to keep it out of out of the system so this is why we're not conscious of our blood pressure we're not conscious of our of, of our our body temperature uh, our heart rate we can infer them from other things but we don't have direct access to them and maybe this is true for all sorts of things you're not conscious of all these systems going ahead but the great evolutionary theorist robert trivers who's still around suggested that there's another reason why something might be con- unconscious and this is your reason which is deception which is sometimes um, the best way to fool somebody else is to fool yourself. So um, imagine, so take confrontations. You know, I'm in a confront, a physical confrontation with somebody and everything. And, and I want to, I all of a sudden, you know, want to act like, oh, you know, I will not back down. I will kill you coming any closer. I'm, I'm fearless. And I believe it myself, even though I'm not. But to convince the other person, which is what I'm really after, what the, how, what the system works is it's really good to believe in yourself. And the other example is falling in love, where sometimes the system, what's the best way to convince somebody? You're head over heels in love with them. You'll never leave them. You're totally into them. Well, to believe it. And having ulterior motives, like a sort of one, well, if this doesn't work out, I have plan B. Having that not available to your consciousness is a wonderful way to deceive other people. One of the interesting things about the love example is I actually don't know what the difference is between believing that you're in love with somebody and being in love with somebody. In the eyewitness example, we have a real world and then we have an experience and we can compare those two, right? The DNA on the lunchbox. In this scenario, I, I don't know what it would mean for your mind to, for my mind to kid me that I'm in love with you when I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't know how that would differ. In a lot of ways, it would overlap. And it's hard to see the believing you're in love with somebody and the being in love with somebody pulling apart too much. But you could imagine that you believe it, but at another level, you're constantly hedging and that there's, and there's a caution to it. Imagine, um, imagine you're, getting, you're, about to, you're about to bond with somebody. You say, I'll never leave you. And you believe it totally. And then all of a sudden, you know, a part of your head clicks, let's get a prenup. Where did that come from? And the fact that that comes to mind maybe suggests that you really don't, that there's part of your head that's kind of looking towards other things. I mean, one of the findings, which I kind of like, it's just kind of sweet, is you ask people who are about to be married, what are the odds of you getting divorced? And they'll often say, zero, one percent, two percent, tiny. What are the odds of somebody else getting divorced? Yeah, 50 percent, 60 percent, I know what the numbers are, <laughs> but not me. And you see, that's kind of nice. It's kind of supporting what you're saying. That that sort of over-optimism is part and parcel of, of, of what it is to be in love. 
You know, if you really thought it was 50%, that's not a good sign. Even though that's what the, that, that sort of cold-blooded uh, math says. But I wonder if at some level you believe it, but you don't believe it. At some level, we hedge these things. What do you think intuition is? So there's many answers to that. Here's an answer which I like. It's from Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize and, and, and talks about two systems of the mind. One, called system two, is the rational, deliberative system. I think this is extremely important. I think it's what separates us from other creatures, where we, we plan, we, we do cost-benefit analyses. The other one is system on our gut. Our gut works metaphorically, our gut. Fast, intuitive, quick. Um, our system two could be egalitarian. Our system one's almost always racist. Our system two can do the math. Our system one goes with whatever options there. I think system one's the gut. And we have system one for a reason. It's really, for, sometimes we need to move quickly. Sometimes the statistics are the way to go. You don't want to work its way through. But despite what some people say, it's not always right. And sometimes you want to distrust your gut. I was once asked for a while if I would, um, would put up a billboard that could say anything. What would I say? And I, I, after a while, I would said, don't listen to your heart. And I think our, our heart, our gut feelings often are, have, are right within a narrow range, but let us down for a lot of things. What's a better approach then? Deliberation, rational deliberation with the help of others, because, because we're really kind of sometimes awful deliberators. When I make a decision and I start thinking about it, I'm often thinking, well, let's explore all the ways in which I'm right. But if you have good friends, you talk about it and you say, well, I'm thinking of, you know, of leaving this person. I'm thinking of, of getting a new job. I'm thinking of moving here. And I'm really enthusiastic. And then your friends will say, well, let's, let's, let's work this out. And, and I think that that's sort of, if you, if you have the time, if you, ha- if you have more than like 10 seconds to act, you have some time, deliberate. And it's like, it's like science. It's like, it's like politics at its best. It's like culture where smart people, different views getting together can bring you way more than you can as an individual. I wonder whether I'm seeing a trend at the moment of people being too deliberate with their decision-making. Uh, I think... Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, certainly a lot of my friends out here in Austin, I think, uh, could actually do with a little bit more intuition, could actually do with letting go of some of the deliberate cerebral cognitive horsepower that they're applying to some of the decisions that they go through, and that they're uh, moving more slowly, that they're vacillating, they're talking themselves into and out of decisions that are bad and good for them. Um, and I wonder whether, I don't know, I mean, this is me totally bro-sciencing yeah. it here, but... Um, a lack of embodied practice, a lack of movement, time outside, where you're not just doing the thinking thing. More people have got knowledge worker jobs than ever before. Uh, and also, for the first time in history, your opinions are more important than your deeds now. You know, it's, it's not really about what you do. It's about the takes that you have. And I wonder whether that is causing people to self-identify with their thoughts more than with their uh, feelings and body. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a, a, a pro-rational guy, and I've, I've sort of like, so I'm, I'm inclined to, to like disagree with you on that. But I'll give you two reasons why I think you're right, or two cases where you're right. One is, for certain things, um, 
you don't want to deliberate. You want to go for your gut and everything. An obvious example is if you're a really good tennis player, just return the backhand. Don't sit down and think about it, make a diagram. It'll mess you up. And in fact, for, for, for really good athletes, thinking about it kills them. Thinking about it has led to people's careers being destroyed, where all of a sudden they said, you know, what is it like to catch a fly ball? You know, what do you know? How does it feel to throw a punch? Is this the right way? Is it this way? Is it this? And you're, you're, you're gone because you have to let the body do it, let the gut system do it. And some things are probably like that. For people, if you're good, if you're socially adept and someone says something at a party, you know, maybe some repartee or maybe an argument, go, your, your, your gut is better, is statistically better than the rational system. That's one case. Another case is, I think our intelligence when employed properly could bring us to places that our gut never can. And I think it really is how to handle good, good choices. I don't think you should decide to get married in a split second. I don't think you should quit your job because you're just really in the mood to do that. But sometimes, and you actually said this, a rational system, all it is, is uh, um, it defends your initial gut feeling. Jonathan Haidt has this, this, this line where I disagree with him in general on this, but I think he's quite wise to point out a possibility, which is sometimes our deliberating minds are like lawyers, not like judges. So it's not like it's a judge balance, a good judge balances things and makes a decision. A lawyer takes something and makes a case for it. And if that's what your rationality is being used for, do less of it. At the other end of the spectrum to Freud would be Skinner and his behaviorism. He also seems to have become a little bit or quite a lot less popular recently. What, what's, why is behaviorism yeah. being sort of thrown away? I thought that was pretty locked up. It's deservedly so. So I have a lot of love for Freud. I have no love for Skinner. I met him once, though, when he was old. He gave a talk. He's a, you know, he had an enormous influence on psychology. And his insight was these, it was developing. He wasn't the first to develop it, but building on this theory of basic learning mechanisms. Classical conditioning is sort of Pavlov thing. You know, you hear a dentist, and you flinch. You know, you see a commercial for some delicious food, your mouth waters. But also operant conditioning. Rewards and punishment is how we train animals. It's very useful. But Skinner was very, Skinner was in some way, I'll put this in the most offensive way possible, led a strange cult where you could only look at what people did and their, their inputs, and you can't talk about their internal states. Some behaviorists would say that's just not scientific to talk about memories or beliefs or desires, dreams, ambitions. Others would say these things don't exist at all. We ju we're just behaviors. Everything just nothing else. Input, and input and output. Yep. There's a joke about um, two behaviorists at a conference. They have sex, and one of them says to the other one, "Was it good for me?" And the <laughs> idea is you know, to explain the joke. There's no such thing as monitoring your own states. All you got is your is your behavior, um, and that's so weird. Of course, whatever my complaints are with the AI movement they get something really important, right? Which is that, that you can't explain and program complex behavior without putting a lot of machinery inside. Statistical analyses, I think also rules, memory bases, and so on. And, you know, Skinner thought this is all unscientific. I think the fact the existence of computers has shown that building machines with stuff inside and trying to explain the stuff inside is how you do good science of intelligent behavior. And it's how psychologists do their stuff. Are we losing something by 
casting off the insights of behaviorism in the modern world? It's a good question. Um, I, I, I think sometimes Skinner gets it right. Um, the time I think about Skinner the most, so Skinner was a, one of his nice ideas was that of intermittent reinforcement. And the idea is, if I want to make you learn to do something quickly, I'll reinforce you every time. The you could be a you. It could also be a rat or a pigeon. I'll reinforce you every time. But suppose I want you to do something forever. I want you to stick with it. Then I randomly reinforce you, rarely. And then, and then you start getting into behavior. And because you don't expect a reward every time, it's always coming up next, you can't stomp yourself. I've never been tempted by slot machines, which was Skinner's favorite example. But like a lot of people, social media gets me. And, uh, and you know, so three in the morning, I wake up, I decide, isn't it a great idea to check my phone and check Twitter? This is perfect, brilliant idea. So, so, and then I spend an, an hour flicking my finger up. Oh, that's nice. Huh. And then this intermittent reinforcement. And I'm like, I'm like a rat in Skinner's cage. And so much of the sort of addictive techniques that people on Facebook and Twitter use are straight up Skinner. So, you know, I'm not a fan, but we ignore them at our own peril. Yeah, interesting. You know Diana Fleischman, evolutionary yes, psychology lady? I don't know her yeah, personally, but I like her work. Yeah, she's got a book coming out called How to Train Your Boyfriend. And she's, <laughs> uh, I think she's terming it evolutionary behaviorism, that she's trying to use EP to inform uh, that back and forth that you that you do have and I, I you know peterson's touched on this a little bit where he says you know if your partner does something that you want them to keep on doing make sure that you remember to praise them about it that's not exactly rats in a cage that just feels a little bit more like not being a shit human but yeah and people so so there's an insight there but people are complicated in a way so suppose you want your kid to read let's take it away from that more interesting domain of sex and let's get boring here you want your kid to read so what's going to well, give him every time he reads a book Give him 20 bucks. Certain age, give us a lot of money because, oh my gosh, this is great. Um, and he'll read books. Um, but the argument against this is his ultimate view will be books don't have any intrinsic value. Like a rat's never going to think this. A rat's going to bang away at, at whatever you, you put in front of, go down, shoot down a maze for the reward. It will never think going down this maze is kind of futile. It's just for, it's just for the reward. It has no intrinsic value. But people will do that. People will do that. And, you know, imagine, imagine for, for either of us getting some sort of monetary award for doing something. You might do it if the money's big enough, but, you, but the minute the money goes away, you'll stop. Sometimes for people, it's almost the opposite, where the way to get people to value something, very anti-Freud, sorry, anti-Skinner, is to, is to get them to pay for it. So, so therapists say, with some justification, if the clients don't pay, they don't take this seriously. Um, Commitment uh, device. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Politicians like volunteers. Now they like volunteers because they're cheaper, but they also like volunteers because after you volunteer for a politician, you, you think, oh my God, I really believe in this. While if they're doing it for $50,000 a month, they think I'm doing it for the money. Who cares with the politician? So this is a way in which operant conditioning, the logic of it, I'm not sure you want to reinforce your boyfriend for something. Um, if you want him to do that thing, uh, when the reinforcement goes away. 
Interesting. That'll be very, very fascinating. I, I, I totally understand what you mean. There's always these stories about um, parents trying to use reverse psychology on kids to get them to want to eat vegetables. Yeah. Like, oh, unless you're good, you won't get any vegetables. Right. And then have you seen, have you ever looked at any of this stuff? Is that legit? Does it work? Um, nothing works. But but this is one of the lessons of life that nothing works. But the logic, the logic is 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 right. Um, look, my next project uh, after this this book is I'm very interested in perverse desires. I'm very interested in why people do something because it's bad. I have a TED talk coming out on this next week. And it's like, it's, it's, and there the, the draw is the badness. What's an example of a bad? The classic example, which is St. Augustine in the confessions. One day he and his friends go into an orchard and they just start stealing the pears. They're not hungry. They throw them away. They throw them to pigs actually. And, um, and I, um, and when Augustine's like shocked at this, this isn't a story. He says, I'm going to tell you stories of sexual debauchery. But then he says, I understand my sexual debauchery is reinforcing, as you know, Skinner would say. Why did I do this? He said, because it was wrong, because I shouldn't have done it. So then I started this thing called a perversity project where I started this webpage and I got people to tell me, send me stories of things that they did that were perverse in that way. And my favorite story is this guy, this guy, a young guy says, I'm there for with my friend, and we each order an ice cream. We're walking down the street, and suddenly I get this urge, and I jam my finger into his ice cream. And and my friend says, dude, why'd you do that? And and the guy's right, he said, I, I didn't know, but I said, I just thought for a second it would really be fucked up if I stuck my finger in his ice cream. And this is a very non-Skinnerian thing, but, but the desire to do something just because it's really fucked up, not despite it, but just because. This is a powerful word. When it comes to development, we talked about babies and stuff earlier on. Have we got any idea how much babies actually know? Yeah. That's one of the that's one of the great discoveries of psychology. I've been lucky enough to to be acquainted with work with some people who real made these these great discoveries, like Elizabeth Spelke at Harvard, for instance. Um, babies know surprisingly a lot about the world. By the time they hit about their first birthday, you could test in subtle ways and you find they understand the physical world. They, 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 they could reason about gravity. They understand when an object goes out of sight, it still remains. They reason about how things move by contact. They also understand the social world. They know that if one person helps another person, the person who's helped will later go back to that person uh, who helped them. They know that if one person messes with another person, the person who got messed with will avoid that first person or sometimes attack them. And you do these incredible research programs showing that very early on, we seem to be hardwired with some rich understanding of the world. So people like Plato and Kant and Chomsky, I think, have been vindicated by the science of developmental psychology. And the idea that the mind is a blank slate has been proven to be wrong. What do you mean pre-programmed? It means that just like every other animal starts with certain instincts about the world, some basic understanding of the world to varying degrees. Maybe they already know how to communicate. Maybe they already know how to move around. Um, we're no exception. So we come in the world in some ways tremendously behaviorally helpless. 
Babies are extraordinarily vulnerable for a long period of time. Then there's again an argument that this is because you need a long period of time for development because we're such social, cultural creatures. There's an enormous period of helplessness and then an enormous period of waiting before sexual maturity just to get the system all up to speed, just to do the, 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 the learning that has to be done. But in addition to the capacity to learn, I think evolution has wired up, us up with a pre-programmed understanding of the world. Some things don't have to be learned. Wow. I, so <clears throat> I was thinking about this before. I was walking around the park that's next door where I live, and I saw a dog, and it does its business, and then it does that back leg flicking yeah. thing, which, I mean, it, does, it, it wasn't even facing in the right direction. It was pointless. Yeah. But I always wonder, who taught the dog to do that? Yeah. Did the dog learn? Did it watch other dogs? Is it a, a reflex, like putting your hand on a hot stove? For a lot of the behaviors of animals, including really complicated behaviors, more complicated than that, um, I think they're just born with it. Now, animals differ. Some animals pop out and are basically adults. They're basically, they know everything. Other animals, there's a long period of learning. And for other animals, it's kind of a compromise. So birdsong, for instance, is partially innate. But then depending on the community of birds you're raised in, it will all do a bit of learning, like, like learning English versus French versus Korean or whatever. Um, I think for humans, there probably are not that many um, inborn behaviors. A few, you take a baby, you take its hand, you put your hand, the baby will grip, stuff like that. Which you, we were once, we were once, you know, hairy animals that, or, and there's a bit of a, of a connection with that. So we have a few behaviors like that. But I think most of the stuff is just pre-wired understanding of the world. You know, my favorite thing, uh, uh, effect that we have that's vestigially carried over from our time as primates, I learned this from Robin Dunbar, and uh, it's the stroke response that you get. Yeah. And there is a maximum and a minimum speed that your finger needs to move across someone. It's around about three centimeters per second is the optimal speed. And any quicker than about three centimeters per second, you don't get the same area of the brain lighting up because quicker yeah. than three centimeters per second wouldn't be fast enough for you to be able to pick little bits of whatever it is out of foot. And they look and they've done the same thing whilst doing their primatology work. And it's exactly the same. I really, that's really, great. really I love had, that. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that's in his new one, Friends. I uh, did this book, Friends. Really great. So you mentioned there about language, something that you touch on in your new one. What's the relationship between language and thought? I had this um, lesson that I learned a little while ago. I think it's uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. And he says, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And I'd taken that to mean that a richer vocabulary means a richer life, that basically the more precisely that I can describe the things that have occurred yeah. using the best kind of language, the richer I get to experience it. How much bro science horseshit have I used there? No, um, there's some claims of relationship between language and thought, which I think are deep and important and true. Like, you know, we could use language to convey our thoughts, which is what we're doing now. We use, we could, to some extent, um, the language we have reflects our thoughts. Um, you know, one simple example is by John McWhorter, where he points out that, um, that so many of our obscenities have to do with God and damnation and sex. And universally, because these are universally taboo and serious things. A deeper connection is that language, like language like English uses the same expressions for, for space and time. 
you know, I put the coin in my pocket. Uh, I'll do it in an hour. So, you know, we've got a spatial thing. Language is all over. Uh, work on that model, suggesting that there's a deep relationship between space and time in our how we think. And this gets conveyed by language. What isn't true or what doesn't seem to be true is the claim that the specific language you learn affects how you think. There's a very popular idea um, that, you know, people who learn a language like Navajo, which might have a different time system, will think differently from about time. People learn English versus French versus Korean versus Urdu versus whatever. Um, will think differently about the world because of the structure of their language. And it turns out that whenever people look at it, it doesn't seem to be true. It, does, it seems to be that, langu that language, the languages all around the world um, have the same sort of communicative power and don't seem, seem to reflect what we think, but don't seem so much to shape what we think. Given that a lot of the time people think in words and yeah. the words that they think in are in the language that they're in, what does the fact that the language that you speak doesn't seem to impact the things that you think yeah. mean? How do we square this circle? I think what's really interesting is, and this brings us back to what we were talking about before, we have a feeling we think in words, but we really can't in a way. So suppose you think, you know, I'm going to go play baseball because friends, I got to go and buy a bat. Well, the English word bat is ambiguous between, you know, the baseball bat and the flying animal. But your thought isn't ambiguous. You know, linguists like, uh, linguists like the, the ambiguous sentence, visiting relatives can be boring, which is ambiguous. It could mean when they visit you, it's boring, or when you visit them, it's boring. But it's not a, there's no ambiguity when you think. So the idea we think in English is, I think, to some extent, the fact that you do your thinking, and you kind of have a shadow impression of English words that go with it. But, but you don't really think in English in the same sense. That's interesting. You, you look unconvinced. I just, it's, I'm, tr I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out. I've, I don't speak another language. I don't know whether you do, but I, I only speak English. Uh, and I've heard about people who speak other languages sometimes dream in different languages. Yeah. Uh, and that there's, I forget, I saved a psychology today article that I, uh, the other week about this, something to do with the people who dream in different languages. It, it has some some kind of downstream psychological effect on them. Um, I just can't work out how I'm so language heavy when it comes to my yeah. thought. Yeah, I I can't get myself outside of what to me feel like the thermodynamics of thinking. You yeah. know? Yeah. So there's this, there is a tight band between language and thought. But here's how it would go. If you were also fluent in Japanese, maybe you'd get to think in Japanese, but your thoughts wouldn't change. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. Sometimes languages have a flavor to them in a sense that if you were raised in Italy, learned English as a second language, sometimes thinking and talking in, in Italian will bring back certain memories and feelings of the past while English will get you in sort of another mode. You know, we do, we do pick up associations, but the mental life of somebody who thinks in Japanese is not different from the mental life of somebody who speaks in English. Good. Yes, if, if, I it, like if, it, if, it, if it was, the world would be a lot different than, than what it is. Each language I mean, would essentially be a different sort of species in a, exactly. in a psychological sense. Right, yes, exactly. that makes sense. Yes, I understand. You've got it. Nailed it. Right. 
what are the biggest differences between male and female psychology? Look, <laughs> um, it has a lightning round feel to it. Um, the biggest difference between men and women is that on average, men are sexually and romantically attracted to women and on average, women are sexually attracted and romantically attracted to men. That's the biggest difference. You know, obviously it's not a hundred percent. A lot of men are attracted to men. A lot of men are attracted to both. A lot of men are attracted to neither, but the majority of men are attracted to women. That's, that's the biggest difference. When you get out of that, um, the big differences have to do very roughly that men, and this is, this is of all the sort of research I talk about in my book, Surprising me, oh my God, evolutionary stuff, you know, that's very weak. This, this is the sort of research that gets done in 100 countries. This is the sort of research we were talking before about, about the psychologist David Buss. And there's these enormous meta studies and uh, across different, and you find big cultural differences, but you always find the same sex differences. And the sex differences typically are roughly um, men are more aggressive and risk taking. And women are kinder and more nurturant. So, and you don't have to go to a psychology lab to see this. You go anywhere in the world and you say, who does more of your killing? It's men. Women may be aggressive in other ways. They may be, I don't want to make try by who's verbally aggressive or socially aggressive or whatever, but pure violence is mostly a male, a male activity. Um, the the care and nurturance of children is mostly a female activity. And this is true for humans and it's true for primates who are sort of similar to humans. Now, you always got to have the caveat that you're ending up talking about bell curve. So everywhere in the world is also true, men are taller than women. This does not preclude the fact that there are some women taller than the average man and some men shorter than the average woman. You kind of have, whenever time a human difference, maybe it's worth putting in this caveat. There was a study I, I recently read what I loved about it, it has all the continents and just tons and tons of people, an enormous amount of people. And it just asks people a simple question. Um, how many sex partners do you want to have before you die? And in every, in every country you look at, men want more than women. But the cool thing was, in addition to that, is you got cultural differences. So in some countries, like in some parts of the world, like Eastern Europe, everything's higher. So men want a lot and women want a lot. In other cases, in this say Africa, everything's lower. And the way it works is that women in Eastern Europe want more sex partners than men in Africa. So what you have is you have a sort of what's psychology called one effect, a main effect of, of gender. Wherever you go, men want more than women. But you also have an effect of culture. In this place, it's more than this place. And then you have cases where there's this crossover where the effect of culture is so big you have the cases where, where, where it kind of flips if you, if you compare it. But to answer your question, um, issues like aggression, risk-taking, um, and then other aspects of sexual preference. Typically, men want, want younger partners. Women care less about age, stuff like that. Yes. The best example I saw about the um, disposition, let's say, that uh, males would do war and women would do care, uh, was from Joyce Benenson, and she spent a ton of time with kindergarten kids. And she says, if you look at the games that three and four year olds play, the boys will find an enemy, even if it's an yeah. imaginary one. It's aliens, it's cowboys, it's robbers, it's whatever. And the girls will be keeping something alive. That's the yeah. way that that's what they 
tend to lean toward. And, you know, for all denial of sex differences thing wants to happen, this is replicated in chimps. You know, you give yeah. a, a fluffy little sort of baby chimp toy to a even slightly smaller baby chimp. And the same thing happens there too. Yeah. And, and I, I think the stuff that the basic difference is grounded in, in, in our evolutionary history. People have looked at cultures where more egalitarian cultures, you look like, like Norway or Sweden, those, those countries versus less egalitarian cultures, like countries in the, in the Middle East, for instance. The effect is, is in, in, in shows up everywhere. In fact, some of these sex differences are bigger in more egalitarian cultures. Which might seem that seems so weird. You'd think that they would just disappear and no. But the reason why they're bigger is that if you're in an egalitarian society, you're free to to sort of express whatever you want to do. And again, the sort of overlapping bell curves is worth is worth keeping in mind, as well as the fact that just because something is sort of a natural tendency um, doesn't mean it's it's morally good, you know. If some if some women want to be aggressive, if some men want to be nurturant, I think people should be free to do whatever whatever they want. But but this is the way the trend goes. Do you think that attachment theory is bullshit? Because I have been seeing this more and more. I have a bunch of friends that work as coaches and therapists that rely very heavily on attachment theory and whatnot. And I don't know how far it's getting out over its skis. Have you uh, looked at attachment theory? It's so funny you should say this. I, I got into a discussion a few days ago with somebody, a developmental scholar, and I said, attachment theory is bullshit. And we argued back and forth. And, and bullshit's too strong in that there are, um, there are different attachment styles parents and children have. There's different attachment styles we could have as adults. I think the strong claims about them are bullshit. I think... In this domain, as in so many others, people tend to forget base, the basic sort of principles of, of, of how traits get passed on from parents to children. So, so the fact that um, a child in a certain attachment style as a kid might duplicate that attachment style as an adult need not be because of the experience. It could be just from the get-go. It was maybe an aggressive parent or a timid parent, and it just got passed on to the kid. When you're saying that, you're not talking about a behaviorally aggressive or timid parent. You're talking about a genetically predisposed yeah. aggressive or timid parent. You're talking about heritability and behavioral yeah. genetics here. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. But, and even if you, so I don't have any deep problem with talking about attachment styles to say that that's one style and that's another style. I think some of the claims about them really do go, go over the skis. Well, and um, I think in general, one of the lessons of a lot of research, one of the more, again, I keep talking about sort of findings from psychology, I think are a little bit shocking. You would expect that the parent's relationship to the kid would have an enormous effect on how what we grow up to be. It's just, it's just common sense. A loving parent makes the kid later on loving, says that a, a brutal parent, you know, traumatizes the kid. It is not true as much as we think it is. A lot of the traits are just passed on by the genes and environment doesn't matter very much. And to the extent environment matters, there's sometimes you know, 50%, 60%, 40%, whatever. It doesn't seem to have so much to do with parenting, but more experiences outside the home. So, and what this means is that you take uh, uh, parents 
and they have biological kids and then they adopt kids into their family. And if parenting played a huge role, you'd expect adopted kids to be very much like the biological because they're raised the same way. It doesn't seem to happen as much as it is. And to the extent that attachment styles get folded into those sort of parenting arguments, parenting matters immensely for shaping your personality and, and intelligence, I think there are problems with it. So would it be your view that attachment style is uh, less malleable? You know, for instance, personality, your ocean, big five personality yeah. doesn't seem to change a massive amount throughout your life. You, you, you can, there are a few interventions to massively change that set point, yeah. at least compared with, with other, other things. Um, would you see attachment style kind of folded in with, with that kind of predisposition? I'd be tempted to think that, but I don't know. I, I, I would want to be careful and want to look at the, at the studies. Um, you're, you're right that for the most part, again, putting aside attachment, our personality is relatively constant over our lifetime. A kid who at age eight is, um, is introverted and agreeable and studious, you know, grow to be an adult, most likely who's introverted, agreeable and studious. We can, to some extent, hack our personalities. Um, people, sometimes people do it with medication if you're over anxious, um, there are sometimes people, people claim that disciplines, everything from, you know, mindfulness meditation to stoicism to Catholicism can transform your personality in certain interesting ways. But for the most part, it doesn't change that much. You know, I, I sometimes think that this is me not being a psychologist. This is just, just me thinking that the trick to life isn't so much changing yourself but is finding um, friends, lovers, family, unemployment, fun that mesh with how you are. I'm I'm not an extroverted guy, and I could have tried to be extroverted, more extroverted, but in, and be and then so I could be a salesman. But maybe the idea is I'm not a salesman. I'm a, I'm a professor, and I could be a bit less introverted, less extroverted, and more focused on other things. I really like that. I really like that takeaway, especially as someone who recently moved from a country where I was uh, felt a little discordant, a little bit yeah. like a, an, an off note, and then to one now where it feels a bit more aligned. And I have people around that I can understand a little bit more. And I went from a career and a job that I was incredibly successful in and uh, took a ton of pride in what we did, running these massive events and one of the yeah. biggest events companies in the UK and all the rest of it. But again, with that, there was just something a little bit, it was, you know, half an octave off. And I thought, uh, what's going on here? Uh, and, you know, I'm now doing something which, again, aligns with my disposition, with the way that I like to live my life, with the things that I like to think about in private, in public. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I I totally agree. If you take if you take it as relative truth that the person that you are is going to remain pretty constant in terms of your your disposition throughout your life. That's not to say that you can't change the kind of capacities that you have and learn things, but your propensity toward wanting to learn or wanting to yeah. be open or wanting to change or wanting to be neurotic or wanting to be extroverted are going to stay the same. You go, okay, look, these are kind of the physics of my universe. They're not absolute laws, but if I try and fight against them, they're going to drag me back toward whatever they are. How can I get myself, how can I marry what I am with what I want to become with what the world can deliver to me? I think that's a really nice way to fold all of that together. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like your example, which is if you're in the UK and you're kind of a natural American, 
Well, you could try to stomp that aspect of yourself out of you, or you could do what you did and move to Texas. You know, and, and I think there's an advantage. It might be easier to, 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 to move to Texas. One thing to keep in mind is implicit in all of this is I think there are genuine, there are general ways to be that are bad, that are just maladaptive, you know, um, that's, you, that slide into mental illness. You know, nobody, nobody wants to be schizophrenic. Nobody wants to be severely depressed. Nobody wants to be incredibly anxious. And for that, you'd want to fix it. You're not going to find a world that's good, that, 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 where you prosper in it. But within a surprising large range, there's just a lot of ways to be. I was talking about this in my intro psych class, and the student, the student raised her hand and asked me, it was a very good question, saying, well, what's the best personality for, for all these things? What's, what's the best? And it's a good question because a lot of people think there's an answer to this, extroverted, agreeable, low, ner- low neuroticism. They're, they're wrong, actually. That, that in some worlds, being an extrovert is a real power. In other lives, being an extrovert is a recipe for misery and failure, and introverts thrive. In some worlds, it's really good to be agreeable. Everybody likes an agreeable person. But disagreeable person, people, you know, transform everything, and so on and so forth. Where, where so it's not as if you, you, you get yourself on a personality scale and you find yourself, oh, I want to move here, 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 because that's the right way to be. Rather, there's a world and jobs and people for just about every space in, in the personality matrix. Does that explain why people differ so much in their intelligence and their personality? That there are, or there would have been a lot of different environments and ways to succeed. And if we had pigeonholed every human to be this much agreeable and this much neurotic and this much whatever, you wouldn't have had uh, as effective of a tribe? That's really interesting. I don't know. I've, I've heard that sort of it. There's two ways of looking at it. One is any system's going to have noise. Why isn't everybody exactly the same height? Because there's just random stuff with diet and genes, and it pushes us around and everything. But it might well be that in some ways, some degree of human variety turns out to be adaptive. And in some way, you don't have to talk sort of for the good of the tribe or good of the group. In some way, it's sort of frequency dependent, where if... If everybody, if enough people in my society are A's, it might pay to be a B. And then once you get enough B's and they overwhelm it might pay to be an A. If, if enough of people are, are uh, agreeable, a disagreeable person could clean up. If enough people are disagreeable, an agreeable person, oh my God, everybody wants to be with them. And so in this way, in a sort of dynamic, one could imagine that that bit of variety turns out to be to be beneficial. It's like a personality arms race, in a way. Yes, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, where, where everyone's right. finding different different right. ways to come through. I mean, consider some other sort of sort of market. Like, consider you know TV shows. Why doesn't everybody make the same great TV show? Because if you have ten prestige dramas, all of a sudden uh, a, a, a dirty lowbrow comedy is everybody. Oh my god, let's see that! What a break from it. And then when you get enough of those, you, you toss in some reality shows. You get enough, to, and then you get a range of things, because in this world, um, sometimes you don't have sort of negative, adverse selection to being the way everyone else is. My, we've just touched on behavioral genetics. There, I had Robert Plowman on the show mm-hmm. maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, and the guy's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I love his work. I feel like. 
if I was to look at the field of science at the moment, not diet, but sort of psychology and, and, and personal development style stuff, the biggest hole in terms of public education, the longest lever that we could push down on would be teaching people about how behavioral genetics works, about how heritability works. I think that that would help people to make better life choices, better partner choices. It would help parents to feel less culpable or uh, less neurotic and over-concerned yeah. about the outcomes that their kids are going to have. And then when you fold in the you know, the, the nurture part of the nature-nurture debate isn't the nurture that you give them. It's the nurture that Jim's dad next door gives them. And it's the nurture of the yeah. boxing coach that yeah. they give them and the friends that are around them that they impart, impart on them. I feel like that, is, from the outside looking in, is the biggest hole that we have in terms of sort of public education. I think that's a, I think that's a, that that's that that that's a wise point. I'll just add two things. One is, as you know, stuff gets very politicized, um, and you know, talk about genes and behaviors and everything. For some people, it brings up a specter of scientific racism and, you know, Holocaust and all of that stuff. So, so I think now we're starting to sort of say, well, we could sensibly talk about these things without, um, without it being carried with the ugly baggage of history, just like, you know, behaviorism, other, other ideas of human nature similarly have an ugly baggage of, of control of totalitarian governments and everything. I think we've got to look at the facts in some, in, in a way that's compassionate and reason. The other thing is at some level, this is stuff worth getting out. But at another level, when people aren't on Twitter or Facebook or writing op-eds and everything, people kind of know. There's some really nice stuff done by Emily Willoughby where she just asks people, from a scale of zero to 100, how heritable are these different traits? You know, how your, your introversion, aggression, religiousness, sexual orientation, eye color, and so on. Explains a little bit what this means. And then graphs it. It turns out your average person is not bad at knowing this. Your average person pretty much matches, with some exceptions, the scientific literature. When, when you're not dealing with people who are ideologues and you ask people, say, do you think how shy somebody is, is sort of a genetic trait? People often appreciate that. Yeah, it is to some extent. There was a chart in... Plowman's book, Blueprint. And I think that that's the same study you that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I had a, a guy on talking about embryo selection and genetic enhancement, uh, Johnny Anomaly, talking about this recently. And that, I think, will force everybody. It will be a, a very difficult to avoid red pill for everybody about heritability. Because as soon as you can go in and say, well, look, this is these are the um, raw materials that we're playing with. And this is how far we can push these different things. And downstream from that, look at the changes that yeah. children have from genetic interventions before they were born. Yeah. It kind of bursts this conversation open a little bit. And that technology is not slowing down. It's not stopping. It seems like it's, it's partly already here. And in the future, is only going to be more here. I think that's right. But I'll give you something which is here. And I haven't looked into this, but here's my intuition. Many, many people have kids through uh, uh, donor sperm and donor eggs. I don't think there's many people who say, I don't care. It's all, it's all how you were, send me, give me anybody's sperm, anybody's eggs, I'm in. No, people really want 
the sperm and eggs of people they see as having, you know, not just good physical health, but they haven't had a history of severe mental illness. They want people who are Nobel Prize winners. They want they want women who have been to the to the Ivy Leagues. They want people who are and and I think when push comes to shove, people have an understanding that um, that this stuff matters. You know what's very interesting there? I don't know whether you've considered this, but Johnny taught me about this when it comes to sperm donor selection criteria for women. What you get to do <clears throat> as a woman is bypass your own mating psychology with regards to what you're attracted to in terms of what seduces you, which may cause you to downstream use those genetics to form a child. And what you actually do is you optimize for the traits that you want your child to have yeah. independent of the attraction. So a lot of the time, uh, like a, a, a pleasant disposition or kindness uh, is something that is really, really optimized for being like dominance and stuff, which may be something which is uh, right. sexually attractive, but in a child, do I want like a super dominant no. child? Well, perhaps not. No. Uh, and that was the first time that I've ever thought, oh my God, look at what happens when you can separate out having sex from the production of the child that comes from it or, or, or attraction from uh, procreation. It's really interesting. You know, there's this work, I'm, I bet you're familiar with this on what's attractive. So you take an average face, average faces are pretty attractive because you factor out all the flaws and everything and homogeneity, you know, maybe genetic heterogeneity, whatever, but they're, they're pretty aggressive. For female faces, if you dial up the femininity of the face, everybody thinks they're prettier, make the eyes bigger, makes lips fuller and prettier. But for male faces, if you dial up the masculinity, it doesn't quite do it. You see these these fishes, these testosterone guys, you know, the enormous jaw and like that. And, and, you know, and in some cases, they're considered worse. And there you're capturing what you just said, which is for women, there's sort of two things that pull apart, which is you may not want a hyper aggressive, most manly man. Um, there's, there's a draw to that. But you also want a man with actually some female traits. Some prototypically female who isn't as aggressive, who is more compassionate, more kind, and so so the case for for women selecting men isn't as, as simple. And you're exactly right. In a case where you could separate what you want as a kid for your kid and what you want for your partner, there is, is a separation women will adopt. Do you think that psychology can help us understand what a good life is? I think the question of what the good life is is not ultimately a psychological question. It's, it is a moral and philosophical question. You know, if one psychologist said a good life is simple, simple pleasure, hedonism, maximize, you know, the amount of, of, of hedons, the amount of, of orgasms and cookies and all that stuff, this, that's a good life. And another one said, no, no, a good life is being moral and relationships and suffering. Not kind of an experiment to figure out which is right. There's a, a, a philosophical disagreement here. I think the second guy is right, actually, but, but, it's not, it's not a psychological question. Where psychology comes in is once you decide what a good life is, what to maximize, a psychologist can tell you a little bit about how to get there. Then it becomes an empirical question. You know, if, um, so, so I've been interested in the question, for instance, of do children make you happy? And I, I, the question of whether it's good to have children in some sort of abstract way is, is not a psychological one, but what's the effect of people's lives on having children? And the answer actually turns out is complicated. It depends. It's different for men than for women. It's in countries with good childcare. Dig, in, dig into that. Explain. Um, so the original findings studies were done by, by Kahneman in the United States. And they found that um, they used an experience sampling thing 
where they took a, where it turned out that people who had kids were on a whole less happy than people without kids. And when they were with their kids, it was kind of stressful. It wasn't a good time. And so the argument was being having kids doesn't make you happy. But then there were more studies then. And the answer is always with these things is it depends. Um, in countries which have good childcare, parents tend to be happier than non-parents. The United States is in some way atypical as a very wealthy country, but doesn't have very good uh, paid childcare. Um, younger parents are in some way less happy than older parents. Single parents, as you can imagine, find ha- the, the period where their kids are young to be very difficult. Um, women sometimes find it a bit harder than men. To me, the most interesting findings comes when you separate the questions of how much pleasure you're getting from your kid, how happy does your kid make day to day, and how worthwhile do you think it is? How meaningful do you think it is? Because then when you ask about meaning and worthwhileness of value, significance, you do find that there's a real significance to having kids. And for me, you know, I, I, I have I have two sons in their 20s. And, and actually, you know, I actually really like raising them. So maybe it's not a complicated thing. But in some way, if people say, so what do you think of having kids? I wouldn't say, yeah, it really add a lot of pleasure to my life. Seems like the wrong way of doing it. It's just, it, it, it is of great significance. I love them. They're, they're, they're the most important thing I ever did. Separate from any happiness they gave me. I remember learning about Kahneman, and Dan Gilbert, and they had two different conceptions of, yeah. of, of happiness. It may have even been from you that I actually It was from the, from the sweet spot. I, I, yes. we, I, I had the debate, yes. Yes, yes right. and one was uh, hedonism and the other is meaning. And yep. one is uh, you spend the entire, the remainder of your life on a, a lilo with a cocktail in a pool, yeah. sunning yourself. And the other one, you do difficult things, but in retrospect, yeah. you're glad that you did them. It's my belief upon reflecting on your book from two years ago, I forgot it was from your book, that your personal disposition is one of the most important determinants as to how you move up and down on that spectrum. So if you are the kind of person that ruminates, that's introspective, that will tend to uh, reflect and and consider your decisions perhaps a little bit more, that will seek the meaning in things, I don't know where on ocean hedonism lies maybe like openness to new experiences i don't know but anyway my point being if you are the the um non-hedonistic person you need to optimize for things that are going to give you meaning whereas if you're someone that does can take more simple pleasure in the moment to moment experience of life then perhaps you also need to factor that in too how far off do you think i am i don't think you're far off at all i think that i'm a pluralist and I think there's a lot of things you might want to maximize in your life, you know, meaning, pleasure. We haven't talked about being a good person, being moral. We haven't talked about spirituality for some people. And everybody got to choose how you rank them, how you prioritize them. And I think you're exactly right that some people be more comfortable with one choice over another. Some people like to be challenged. Some people don't. Um, I think for everybody, though, the simple, pure hedonism plan is probably not a good idea, even on its own terms. Like, suppose we both say, my gosh, all that matters is happiness. But we could agree on that, but still say, but don't try to be happy. So for one thing, you get bored if you're just happy all the time. Happiness, you get the so-called hedonic treadmill. You're just going to get bored of stuff. But for another, there's actually some nice studies finding that, at least for people in, uh, in the West, the East is a little bit different. You ask them, how important is it for you to be happy? 
And then you ask them how happy they are. And there's a negative correlation. People put value and importance on happiness tend to be less happy. Now, immediately, somebody like you says, yeah, it's complicated because you can imagine the criticism being, if you're less happy, maybe you take happiness more seriously. So it's hard to pull them apart. But I think in general, trying to be happy, and this is, this is ancient wisdom, is kind of a sucker's move. And what you should try to do is maximize other things, and then happiness will come along if you're lucky, or do it right for the right. Looking forward, given that we are now, uh, perhaps there's more uh, areas of research to be decapitated by the replication process, but uh, looking forward, what do you think are some areas of psychology that are the the unknowns or the unknown unknowns? Where where are we? Where should psychologists be looking, or what what can people expect? Do you think from psychology over the next couple of decades? Wow, that's such a good question. I think in ways that I find it hard to anticipate. I think that the rise of AI over the last very recent past last year or so six months what's happening now chat gpt is going to transform psychology in certain ways um i know people and i'm actually involved in one project where we're testing people to get their intuitions we're also testing chat gpt we want to know what it thinks too with an eye towards pulling apart what a statistical learning machine would do and what a person would do so i feel that that's a very rich area I'll tell you something, another area, just to just to kind of mix it up a bit. There's one part of psychology which is sort of punched below its weight, and it's clinical. Clinical say, I've heard experts in the field, expert clinicians say, over the last 30 years, there's been no big developments in clinical psychology. We know treatment works, but it's not like the treatment works better now than it did in 1990. Medications work, drugs work, but, you know, we got Prozac, we got, we got you know, lorazepam, we got these, 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 these things. They're not very different from what was on the market 20 years ago. I wonder if that's going to change. There's a lot of interest in psychedelics, a lot of interest in like mindfulness meditation. There's a lot of new idea, a lot of interest in, um, in sort of um, neuroscientific interventions involving sort of basically zapping the brain in different ways. And... It wouldn't surprise me if, if we're on, on the cusp of the revolution understanding mental illness. That would be pretty cool. That Paul would be Bloom, pretty cool. Ladies and gentlemen, I really appreciate your work. I absolutely love it. The new one, Psych, is great. Where should people go if they want to check out the stuff that you do and keep up to date with your work? Um, I, got a, I got a website, paulbloom.net, and I got a Twitter thing, paulbloom at Yale. And, um, and in both of them, I, I mercilessly... Uh, try to try to impose this until at one point in Twitter, they're going to say, stop doing this. We're not going to follow you anymore. So I got to stop. You're no longer a Twitter account. You're just a salesman. I'm just a salesman and everything. So, so, but (laughs) that's where to find me. Thank you so much. This is always, this is always a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.